somewhere between sleeping and waking, on our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment when we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two worlds that spin against each other like gears, an attentive traveller will see a narrow door, only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, a tumbling cascade of imagination and reality, a fault line in the tectonic crust of consciousness, where volcanoes erupt the hot pumice of images and the languid ooze of narrative. Welcome to Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a fortnightly podcast of curious tales for all ages from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host, Seymour Jacklin. Visit bordersofsleep.com to find out more. So, if you are ready to travel with me, then I shall begin. Two Handkerchiefs by Seymour Jacklin September the 12th, 1938 Dear Corrine, it's most unlikely that you will ever read this letter, for I've nowhere to send it. I don't even know if you're alive, but I know that I will not be alive for much longer, and I must set some things down before I move on. I address this letter to you, but perhaps I'm really making it out to the you of my memory. I don't know who you've become in ten years, but I must let you know that I have never forgotten you. In fact, more than that, you've never been out of my thoughts for more than an hour, and even more lately. I have long conversations with you in my head. I wonder if you remember me. Please forgive me if this seems to come to you from a complete stranger. I wouldn't blame you if I'm nobody to you by now. Let me introduce myself to you again. It's Colin. When you last saw me, I was nine and you were ten, and you lived next door to us in the house with the wooden shingles and the weather vane on the roof. We spent a perfect summer playing together. Do you remember that? Do you remember we actually caught a trout by tickling it? It was under the bridge where our road turned into a bridleway and crossed the river. We saw him under a rock. You didn't believe that it could be done and nor did I, but I'd read about it in a book. I was the first to reach down, ever so slowly, and touch him, right on the line that ran down the side of his body. It felt slimy and strange, and I didn't want to touch him again, but you were not put off. You had him asleep in the palm of your hand, in moments, and deftly scooped him out of the water. He lay like a dead thing for a few seconds before he flipped himself back into the water. I loved you then. You filled my world from east to west. You looked out on the world and I looked upon you, watching the dragonflies kissing the reeds, all summer long. I was enthralled to watch your enchantment, and I guess I must have followed you around like a shadow for weeks. After you and your family had gone, the whole landscape became a museum of my life with you, and only meant anything to me because of that summer. Here was the bridge where we tickled the trout. There was the tree where you lost your Alice band halfway up and I crawled along a branch to retrieve it. Here was the rock where we shared an orange. There was the path we dawdled along for a whole afternoon, making up names for flowers. We left that place too, just two summers later. 
Without the surroundings to keep my memories alive, I made up new adventures with you in my head. I know you would laugh if I told you of the fun that we've had. The what-ifs, the might-have-beens of my imagined life with you. I couldn't keep up with my peers at school. I was sickening, even then, and absent for weeks at a time, often confined to bed or being taken to see another expert with their pet theories. They blamed everything, from my thyroid to leukaemia, but none of them could change the fact that everything was slowly shutting down. Now I'm 24 years old, and I can see the end. People don't know how to behave around me. I knew long before the medics admitted it, that I didn't have long. Corrine, I'm not writing this to make you feel bad. I want you to know that you have been the brightest thing in my life. I hope you don't think it's unfair of me to declare my love for you and my utter faithfulness to that love from my deathbed. I can't indulge in regrets. I don't wish for you to find a way to return my devotion. You have your own life now. I just want you to know that you have been what I was most grateful for in my short time and you achieved that by being nothing more than yourself. I hope that you will take encouragement from that and never try to be anything that you are not. On the day you left, I don't think either of us had much of an understanding of what was about to happen. We were away down the paddock. Goodbye was not anything we knew about. Our mothers were calling us, both of them standing at the fence just as if they were calling us for dinner. You ran just slightly ahead of me and I noticed that the edge of your handkerchief was trailing from your pocket. I managed to grasp it and pull it out, but you didn't notice. I don't know what possessed me, but I dropped it in the grass and paused for a moment to drop my own handkerchief just next to it. Something inside me said, at least if she goes, our handkerchiefs can stay together. I don't know what this gesture achieved. I never found the handkerchiefs again, but I do feel peaceful whenever I think about them. Please allow me to call you my dearest as I finish this letter, as that is what you have always been to me. My dearest Corrine, I love you always. Your friend, Colin. The two handkerchiefs lay in the grass until the dew fell upon them that night. Colin's checkered blue with a monogrammed letter C in the corner, and Corrine's clean white edged with purple thread and with an embroidered posy of lavender in the corner, just touching one another, like a pair of Icarus's fallen pinions in the moonlight. Now, on this night, a single pair of tiny feet skipped their way across the paddock, and even the ponies were too intent on their midnight snacking to notice them. But beyond the paddock, and over the water meadows, several paces from the rock on which the two children had once shared an orange, there was an ancient hummock. All that could be seen by human eyes of the portal to the beautiful underground realm of the she, the little folk, the fairies as they're called in some parts, although they have a name for themselves that no mortal knows. By night they made merry all over the meadows, but by day they retreated to their barrow and to the ornate galleries within and attended to their own dark business. And dark business there was to attend to, so dark and of such great importance that for the last few days the little folk had stayed in and worked throughout the night. They were preparing for war. 
In the last week, a tribe of hobgoblins had come down the river, pulled their dark, long boats up the bank, and set up camp in a swamp where grew a clutch of the sorriest weeping willows in all the land. One of their scouts had been captured by the fairies and welcomed with a cup of truth water. So drunk was he that he blabbed it all out and the Queen's own stenographer had taken down every rough syllable. The hobgoblins had every intention of storming the barrow and taking it over as a base for their own mischief, which was of the unkindest sort. Cadencia, the reigning queen, was shrewd, and on hearing this news she ordered the hobgoblin scout to be put in the dungeon that had never been used in living memory, and immediately demanded from all her subjects the sort of austerity that fairies rarely bother with. She set everyone to making weaponry and armour and strengthening the fortifications. Every able-bodied sprite was commissioned to patrol and guard the entrances on a strict rotation, the femfolk as well as the menfolk. All the caverns and tunnels rang to the trudge of feet, the huff of the forges and the clash of hammers, except for the Queen's own chamber of court, where she sat, splendidly calm and receiving a stream of progress reports from her adoring and industrious subjects. So it did not please her at all when a commotion broke out at one end of the room, and the sound of some of her courtiers saying, Shh! only served to annoy her even more. Two guards were dragging in a suspicious-looking individual who'd been snooping around outside, a little fellow in a torn green coat with tufty white hair like a baby bird's, and a basket that was twice his size strapped to his back with flax fibres. If it please your majesty, pleaded one of the guards, we found this character outside and he's not one of us. They backed off, leaving the little old chap in the middle of the room. His knees were bent like a cricket's and his back was round like a beetle's, and his eyes looked up at the queen from under wild eyebrows as bushy as carded wool. Who are you? demanded the queen. I'm just a peddler, please. Stand up straight, you ugly spriggan, she yelled at him. The Queen had a warm heart, but she couldn't hold her temper. It was like something else that lived inside her, in spite of her best efforts to tame it, for fairy blood runs thick and carries in it a peevish poison that they cannot master. The little old man tried to straighten up, but fell over on his bony backside under the weight of the basket. There was a giggle from a few of the courtiers. Silence! she yelled. How do I know that you're not a hobgoblin spy? Your Majesty, I travel all over the country and make my living as a travelling salesman. I'm sure that I have something here that will interest you in my basket. I'm no goblin, I promise. My father was a house brownie who was chased out of his employment by a cat. You don't smell like a goblin, conceded the Queen. But if you don't have any swords or crossbows in that basket of yours, you can be on your way, for I have no time for a tinker's trinkets right now. The peddler struggled free from the bonds of his basket and got up on his feet again, although he was no taller than when he was sitting down. He took the lid off and began to rummage around inside, saying, Now, I think I may have a sword or, or, or something in here somewhere. Bear with me, if you please. Ah, now here's a thing. He held out a sliver of orange peel towards the throne. This scented peel, what a delightful fragrance for my lady's chamber, he wheedled. I told you, I'm not interested. I need weapons, she snapped. Undaunted, the peddler plunged his arms back into the basket and brought out a dirty folded sheet of paper, which he proffered to the queen. 
With a glint in his eye, he said, On this paper, your majesty, are written the prettiest names for common flowers that you ever heard. I'm sure it will delight you. It does not delight me, she replied. If it's not a map or a recipe for poison, I have no use for it. Now get out. A map, exclaimed the peddler. I think I have something better than a map here. He was stalling for time, but after a little more rummaging, he triumphantly grabbed a corner of cloth in each hand and walked backwards across the room, towing it out behind him until not one but two magnificent squares of linen, one blue and checkered and the other white with a lavender trim, were stretched out at the Queen's feet. Everyone gasped. Now these offerings did delight the Queen. For a moment in that room, everyone forgot that hobgoblins even existed. Her eyes fell upon the letter C in one corner of the blue handkerchief, and she clapped her hands with delight, for as you know, her name was Cadencia. I shall take the chequered one for my bedspread and the lavender one for my robe, she declared, and instructed the guards to show the peddler to her treasure room where he might choose anything he wanted in return before going on his way again. So that is how these two handkerchiefs came to be in the possession of the Queen of the Fairies. The very next night the fairies were ready and marched upon the hobgoblins in the marsh in a preemptive strike aimed at pushing them back into the river. They were joined by a host of magnificent battle butterflies arrayed in their own butterfly armour and whose bright wings would dazzle the enemy as they swooped down. The fairies and butterflies succeeded in destroying most of the boats, but the hobgoblins seemed to be able to melt away into the mud, becoming almost invisible and counter-attacking with terrible effect. Sadly, the fairies took a number of casualties and limped home, defeated, before daybreak, carrying their wounded home instead of the inebriated they usually brought back from carousing in the fields. Worse news followed bad and reports soon came in that the hobgoblins had been reinforced with another fleet of ships and foot soldiers, as well as making an alliance with the bog beetles, who were so scaly that they didn't need any armour. In the following week, the hummock itself came under attack, and it would have been overrun had the butterflies not made a strong cordon of beating wings all about it. These skirmishes were but the beginning of a long and sorry war that took such a toll on the countryside that even humans may have wondered why the grass was dying in those parts and some trees seemed to have been burned, but for the fact that all their souls were soon taken up with a war of their own. In fact, it went on for many, many years. There were times of respite, of course. One autumn, the fairies even succeeded in retaking and securing the meadows for long enough to resume their nightly parties until the winter clamped down. When the fairies went out to battle, the queen went ahead in her lavender-trimmed robe, and when they returned, she crawled under the blue checkered bedspread and slept with complete exhaustion. It seemed to her that the robe and the bedspread were the only two beautiful things left in her shattered kingdom. Eventually, the tide turned in favour of the fairies because of two important things that happened. Firstly, some men came with machines and drained the marsh and put the willows out of their misery by sending them to a cricket bat factory. This fundamentally compromised the hobgoblins' foothold on the river banks and they never quite recovered. Secondly, the fairies were able to tackle the problem of the endless supply of reinforcements that came down the river in their slimy boats by forming an alliance with the trout, 
who could upset the boats and drag the hobgoblins down to watery graves. So at length the fairies beat a diminishing goblin army back to the edge of the river and the last great battle was joined. The butterflies bore down from above and the fairies fought hand to claw and any hobgoblins that fell ended up in the river as it was the only place to go and were being finished off by the trout. Cadencia was standing her ground where the fighting was thickest, her sword flashing and beating upon goblin heads like a thousand heavy raindrops. She could not see, but the battle was as good as won. One final charge from the butterflies suddenly scattered the hobgoblin soldiers and then began to dive into the river, thinking that they had a better chance in the water than on the land. Nobody noticed that a single enemy bowman had managed to crawl up the far bank and had trained his last arrow on the queen. He let it fly with a hideous curse, and it split the air like lightning, whistling towards her head with deadly aim. By chance a butterfly passed between her and the arrow just as it bore upon her. The arrow tore through two of the butterfly's wings and it lost all its fury, tumbling harmlessly at her feet like a fallen twig. And it was all over. The fairies saw the last of their enemies going down in the mouths of the trout, and they set up a roar of victory. Cadencia rushed over to the butterfly where she had crashed into the dust. You've saved my life, little one. She was weeping, for the butterfly could only crawl and drag what was left of her wings along the ground. She called for a few soldiers to lift the butterfly onto their shoulders and carry her back to the barrow at the head of their triumph. The poor thing fainted with shock and weariness. They returned to the courtroom that had been turned into a hospital for the wounded and managed to take her heavy armour off her and revive her with an elixir, but she would not be able to fly again. On a day of such glory and relief, the Queen could only find tears, for she would have preferred to lose her own life than to see this beautiful creature crawling for the rest of hers. Quickly, she said to one of the servants, go and fetch my bedspread and she took off her robe and ordered that the tailors set away with them straight away to make a new set of wings for her guardian angel. They stitched all night and by morning the butterfly had new wings all in checkered blue and white with lavender trim and everyone said they were the most beautiful wings they had ever seen. August the 1st, 1988 Dear Colin, they say that I'm losing my memory, but I don't know what they mean. In fact, I think my memory's getting better than ever. Every day I remember something new as clearly as, as if it was yesterday. Of course I'm forgetful. Don't ask me what I had for tea last night, but beautiful memories of the things that matter. They're all there for me to enjoy. Oh, sorry, I remember you as if we spoke this morning, but I don't know if you'll remember me after... Oh. Seventy years, is it? It's Corinne, who lived next door to you for a short while, a long time ago. Let me see. That was before we moved back to the city when Dad got the job he said he'd always been waiting for. A lot has happened since I last saw you. An awful lot. A whole lifetime. I never was as happy again as I was during that short spell in the country. School was miserable. Then I got a job at Dad's office. And then there was the war, which consumed everything, including my father. I know that the odds are stacked that it took you too. Perhaps that's why I never heard of you again. 
It was so hard after Dad had gone, quite apart from the war. There were two baby brothers to bring up and Mum and I did all we could. She actually did better than me and remarried in 1945, a sweet man who brought us some financial stability back into our lives and who was extremely kind to all of us. I was so busy at the time and there were so few men to go round. Back in those days, it never really happened for me. So here I am, an old maid. Now where was I? Well, I've thought often of you of late. My stepfather left me enough money to buy a house for the first time in my life. Would you believe, in my fifties, finally, I moved back here to the place where I was happiest. I live just two miles from where you and I used to live. You wouldn't believe. Our houses have gone now and there are twenty new ones in their place. The area has been developed. They even drained the marsh. There's still some idyllic spots around though, like my garden for instance. But why am I telling you all this, dear Colin? Yes, I've been reminded of you by so many things lately. But the strangest of all was something I saw today. I'm writing to tell you about it because I think you'd understand. If I told anyone else, they would think I'm going mad and put me in a home or something. But I'm not. I was in my garden this afternoon. You know I have 12 different varieties of lavender. You'd love it. Where are you now, Colin? I wonder if you'll ever read this. Of course you won't. This is just me and my thoughts in this paper and pen writing a letter to you. Silly. But who else could I tell? So, yes, I was in my garden and I was thinking of all those silly names we gave to the wild flowers and I was trying to remember them. We would say what we thought the flower reminded us of and then give it a name. So, bug loss became scaly sprig and knapweed became burster purse. But guess what I saw? There was a butterfly that settled on the lilac right in front of my eyes. And when it opened its wings... I saw that on one side they were chequered and blue, and on the other side they were clean white with a lavender trim running right around the outside of them. I wish you could have seen it. It made me think of you. I think I shall take a walk down to the old bridge this evening. At least that is still there. And there are still trout in the river. And when I return I shall seal up this letter and put it with the others, and hope that wherever you are, you feel a little lightness in your heart. Your old friend, Corrine. P.S. I think I shall put a sprig of lavender in for you too. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to listen to more of the music that we used in the soundtrack, uh, go to magnatune.com and look for Jamie Sieber. We used some uh, music from various albums for this week's uh, background music. Uh, I want to say thank you to my sound man, Tim Wiles, who's uh, done a great job on the sound once again. And also beg for some feedback once again please pop onto uh, bordersofsleep.com and tell us if you like or don't like what we're doing um, otherwise we'll just put out a really nasty episode and see how many complaints we get <laughs> just to see who's out there anyway uh, in the meantime uh, I it remains for me to wish you sweet dreams <laughs>